Go get him, tiger. Rawr. We're all behind our baseball team. Go get him, tiger. Welcome to a special edition of Tigers SRD here on SportsRadioDetroit.com. I'm Roger Casillo alongside me. Looks like I will be joining me this evening as we welcome a very special guest. He wrote a fantastic book, and it is called the uh, October to Remember, 1968, the Tigers and Cardinals World Series, as told by the men who played it. His name we, we have on the podcast this evening is Brandon Donnelly. Brandon, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me, and uh, it's great to talk about this Tigers with the whole weekend just wrapping up, and for anyone who saw it, it was a great ceremony at Comerica Park, and uh, hoping the word about the 68 Tigers is kind of getting out, that, you know, how great a team they were. Yeah, and, and, and that ceremony, you looked at the ceremony on Saturday, it was fantastic, seeing the gentleman come out there, throw the first pitch, Dan Dickerson being the MC and for this team, this is a team that had had documentary on HBO uh, that Liv Schreiber did an excellent job of uh, narrating. But this is a team that you know brought the city together. But the, the, one of the one of the things I want to start with in your book that I really there was a quote that I think is just fantastic, and it was from um, from the, from a book. It was from taken from uh, the, from one of the verses in the book from uh, the Glory of Their Times. Or excuse me, I'm sorry, it was the um, I can't say it correctly, but um, please yes. Yeah, thank you. And and the book and the quote that I loved was, "To everything there is a season, and a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up from which it was planted." And that really set up your quote, uh, quote for October baseball. And how did you get how did you get started? Where what did this idea come about? And and how did you go about? going across the country to interview some of these great, great talents. Well, it, it started with uh, the, the book that, uh, whose title is, comes from that, that uh, line from Ecclesiastes, The Glory of the Times, which for anyone who's not familiar with it, it's a book from the 1960s where a guy, Lawrence Ritter, drove around the country interviewing players from the 1910s who were just from a completely different era when, you know, they made no money at all. That people talk about today, like people in the 60s made no money, but the guys in the 1910s really made nothing. And the game was so different back then. So he documented um, just through oral history and recording on audio tape uh, these guys' memories. And the whole book of his is the interviews themselves, the cadence of, of the players, the, the rhythm, the way they talk. And I was always fascinated with that. There's a lot of sports books I read that might be well done on some level, but I always feel like uh, it's indirect in the sense that I'm listening to an author's take on something. I always, you know, I want to hear not a paraphrasing, yeah. but the actual. Like, how does this guy talk? What does he think? What is, is this the edited version? What am I getting here? So mm. I wanted to do something similar and I didn't know quite in what format or what it would be. And the, the final idea came together when I went to the 2016 World Series. Uh, I was there with my dad watching our, our hometown Cubs team. And I felt like there was something special about the World Series being there. I mean, it, it felt special even before going, but it really hit me just witnessing that whole thing. So I thought, well, what if I combine this oral history thing with, you know, the baseball history and then the World Series? And I thought I should do a very limited focus on the World Series of some time ago. And then 50 sounded like a good round number. I looked up, you know, what happened 50 years ago and Tigers, Cardinals, 1968. That kind of, that was how it all came together. And then from there, it was, you know, look up which, which players are alive, which players aren't alive. 
try to reach out to them, and uh, the rest uh, became one long road trip to try to find them. Now that is that's fascinating to me because uh, I, I'm picking up the fact that, as you said, you're 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 not even a Tigers fan, like a lifelong Tigers fan, and yet you selected this particular team as the focus of this this book to kind of chronicle what happened in that World Series. I, I guess the timing is right, but I mean, as a Michigan resident, a lifelong Tigers fan, I'm sitting here going, finally, somebody is paying attention to the 1968 team because if you've ever watched, say. Uh, Ken Burns documentary called baseball. He skips right over the 68 team. He mentions uh, game one in which Bob Gibson struck out 17 batters, but he doesn't even like talk about the rest of the series. He never mentions the fact that the Tigers had this unbelievable comeback, you know, behind three games to one to actually win the world series. Like right. I, I feel like this gets, series gets, gets right, bypassed. Yeah. The Tigers won it. And so you didn't pursue this even necessarily from from the standpoint of being a, a diehard Tigers fan. Right. Yeah. I The one connection I do have to Michigan, um, my grandfather grew up on 29 Mile Road in Gratiot on a small farm. And he, in the 40s, was a hot dog vendor for a summer at the old, uh, I think they called the Briggs Stadium back then. And we have this great picture he took in about 1947, I want to say. Uh, Hal Newhouser pitching. Joe DiMaggio batting for the Yankees, and you can see in the foreground there's a there's a guy with a hot dog cap on that says 15 cents, and uh, <laughs> it's just this great picture. We we my dad uh, many years ago had this slide taken and blown up into a uh, wallpaper in our family room growing up, so the whole wall is covered with this old Tiger Stadium photo. And uh, but yeah, I, I grew up in Chicago. I, I don't you know I'm not in my youth so familiar with the Tigers, but in researching this team for the 50 year anniversary concept i just got so fascinated and and certain that this was the this was the topic this was the right topic to pick that seven game series you have storylines like bob gibson 17 strikeouts mickey stanley moving the shortstop from center field you have it's the final year before the playoff system starts right it's been even one of the last years of when people would mostly listen maybe on the radio or black and white tvs i mean they had color but not everyone was watching on a nice color tv by then but maybe by the mid 70s most were and even the fans, a lot of the fans still wore formal clothing in the stands, but maybe even just two years later that started to change. So there's something about, and I mean, with all the political and, and geopolitical things going on at the time, uh, we hear about that year a lot. It's kind of like a magical or infamous year. And uh, baseball played like a small part in that, I think, uh, maybe a large part in it. Yeah, I mean, it's a very significant year in world history, I think, just for the reasons you mentioned and the things that were going on in Detroit at the time with, you know, the riots that were going on. Uh, I think I mentioned this on Twitter when I was talking about your book, just that uh, I've read, you know, books in the past about the 68 Tigers, uh, but they always always want to seem to go towards the history of the city and the history of what's going on in politics and society at the time. And there's there's some focus on the team, but your book is different in that it's it's entirely baseball-focused. It's an oral history. You've just got quote after quote after quote from the players. Uh, was there ever any, like, a temptation on your part to kind of want to go into the actual, like, city history? Uh, for the most part, not. I kind of deliberately chose to stay away from politics from uh detroit happenings you know any other any non-baseball things i felt like other books capture that better and 
personally, I'm just not that interested in it. I mean, I, I could have asked them about the Vietnam War and Martin Luther mm. King Jr. And they did talk about that to some extent. But, you know, that's been written about to death. And for good reason, it's important stuff. But I just felt like I want to do a baseball book. And it's going to be about baseball. And these guys have hours and hours of stories about baseball. So <laughs> yes, we get all that. let's just, you know, see what they have to say about that. And, uh, and no, and I think that's that's what makes that book so compelling. And, and, you know, I started reading that book that you wrote on, I think, Thursday or Friday. And I've not been able to put it down since because it's just it's it's a page turner because you're just getting story after story after story from the guys that were there playing the games. The only thing I can liken it to is. Uh, you know, the 1984 team is kind of my team. That's the one that I remember. And when Sparky Anderson uh, published his book, Bless You Boys, uh, which was a kind of a game by game diary, you know, a breakdown of the entire season. It's the same kind of idea. Like you're, you're actually getting into the sport itself and how each game went down. And that just that's very, very compelling, I think, for a baseball fan. Um, uh, one of the first questions I had when I was reading your book, though, is. It's it's evident that you actually sat down with these players and got to watch clips from the game. Is that correct? Yeah. So, not how how did you find the footage? Uh, well, I, if you go on YouTube and you type in, it's, it was way easier than I expected. You type in <laughs> 1968 World Series Game One. There's a YouTube channel that has the entire game on there. I'm like, wow, okay, uh, that's not going to be so hard. I was thinking I'd have to go on like some obscure MLB website, order a DVD, convert the file, and you know, like. Yeah. Right. Yes. So it's on YouTube. And uh, from there I took, I did like a quick time, I don't know what you call it, but kind of like a video screenshot where you screen record it. And I would, I would clip, you know, like a, a 30 second portion of that longer video and just show if I'm talking to John Hiller, who pitched only two or three innings in the series, I would clip his, when he walks out onto the mound and he's pitching to Lou Brock or so, whoever. And I just show him that and say, you know, what do you remember about this? And with, more important players uh, or more important plays and significant players. Let's say the, for example, the K line home run in game three, I interviewed K line who hit the home run, Ray Washburn, who pitched the ball, the breaking ball mistake pitch and Tim McCarver who called for the pitch. So you've mm-hmm. got these three people chiming in, in this kind of panoramic way that I wasn't sure how well it would work because maybe you sit down with one of them. They don't remember the play or, you know, I can even show them the video, but, you know, who knows what their memory's like, but all three of them remembered it very accurately and clearly. And then you get, you get kind of a three part take on a single moment in that series. And that was cool to see. And the other thing that surprised me, uh, was when I I was sitting with Fred Lasher in his home in, uh, far Northern Wisconsin. And I show him one of the clips. He was one of the bullpen pitchers. And he's looking at it. I, I sort of said to him, you know, do, do you mind if I show you some videos? And I took out my computer. And then he's looking at it. He doesn't really know what I mean. And then he sees himself and he kind of jumps for a second. And then he says to his granddaughter in the other room, he, she said, he says, hey, come in here. Come see your grandpa pitch. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking like, oh, they must not, you know, maybe the girl's eight years old. She hasn't seen it. He goes, I've never seen this. He said he's, he's never seen himself pitch ever. Um, and I'm thinking, like, how can that be the case? But if you're not one of the famous guys like a K-line Mm-hmm. really have video of yourself and uh so i sent him a, a, a thumb drive later with clips i had and i i just couldn't believe that that you know it's 50 years ago i know but right i mean you didn't have like a sports center back then you know clips abundantly and mlb tv and all that kind of stuff so you have to kind of go to you know youtube and whatever your your, your access points are because i uh, again 
the 84 team is my team. That's my generation, right? The 68 team is my dad's team and his friends and that kind of thing. So I've always been interested in it, but I've only been ever been able to procure like game seven on, on DVD. So I, I wasn't even aware that there were that many clips available. Yeah. I was just going to say hook slide. I've been, I've been combing YouTube for a while. Cause I watch a lot of old baseball games because I'm obsessed with kind of trying to watch as much as I've missed. Um, in terms of the what's represented on the 68 side, but other World Series as well. And one of the games I felt most compelling games I ever watched was the Expos and Dodge 1981. The winner would advance the World Series, and that game is on YouTube. So it's amazing what's on YouTube. It, it, it's just astounding. But uh, the one thing I wanted to ask about, it, it starts with Mickey Stanley and the decision of Mayo Smith. Now, Mayo Smith, as a manager, is often overlooked, at least in my opinion, at least, uh, in terms of Tiger managers because Sparky Anderson – course is the, the staple and he's my he's like myself like hooks Clyde. the 84 world series team is my team as well and rightfully so sparky is a great manager but mayo smith you look at the influential uh, decision he had to make early on and that's putting mickey stanley at shortstop and his reaction in the book when he you know you're gonna be our shortstop in the world series and he just basically says holy shit that's why I take, you know, and he was talking about his experience getting all taking those ground balls, but how the whole team reacted around it. And that was a bold strategy for Mayo Smith to put that on the line, especially for the Tigers, who at that point had not been in the World Series since 1945. Yeah, and it was funny at the luncheon on Friday where they had this, this big luncheon with 500 people and all the, all the 68 Tigers there at the Motor City Casino. Uh, when it was Mickey Stanley's turn to speak, uh, he goes, the first thing he says was, you know, when they told me I was going to play shortstop, I couldn't believe it. And when we took the field for game one, I walked out and Norm Cash came over to me and said, I bet you're so nervous they couldn't pull a, a pin out of your ass with a tractor right now. Could they? <laughs> <laughs> and the whole room was cracking up. 500, like, you know, 75-year-old people just dying. <laughs> uh, yeah, that quote is in the book, and that is one of many Norm Cash quotes in the book that had me rolling on the floor. The guy had so many great just little sayings like that, like they couldn't pull a pin out of your ass with a tractor. Um, obviously, you didn't get to interview Norm Cash because he's no longer with us, but who who would you say was the most kind of colorful character in that whole group of guys that you got to interview? I think it, it had to be John Warden, who has become uh, – sort of famous uh, in the, in Tiger circles by this point with the fantasy camp that he does every year. Or I mean, a lot of the guys go to that, but he's he's kind of the the class clown down there. And he's, he shows up to so many events, and he's he kind of uh, steals the, the show every time. So, he, I mean, he was he spoke for four or five hours, and he was one of the first interviews I did. And for a guy who was a rookie, I think he was 20 at the time, and he played like one season, I think, maybe two seasons total. But uh, for for, you know... The extent that he can talk about the, the, the details of the game is more limited than, say, K-Line, because Warden wasn't really playing in the games. But mm -hmm. just as a, as a guy talking about the, all, everything that happened in the clubhouse, everything that happened on the road, you know, rookies getting hazed by the older guys like, you know, McAuliffe and Cash and them. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Warden was definitely the most colorful and the most, probably the best storyteller. He kind of has the gift of gab. <laughs> um, in terms of the, the, the more significant players, I think Mickey Stanley was just hilarious to hang out with and uh when i first showed up at his house or no after maybe after about an hour he took me around in his car to show me these properties he develops in 
I forget what suburb, but some suburb of Detroit. He, he's very active in real estate, and he's in this big pickup truck. We drive back to the house, and he's got this house sitting kind of atop a hill, like looking over a lake. And his, there's like a side yard that goes down the grass toward the lake, and there's this kind of cul-de-sac driveway. So we're heading back to the house. He's driving, and I'm in the front seat. And he sort of just he goes down to like two miles an hour, then he keeps rolling past the driveway into the side yard. And he starts rolling down the hill, rolling down the hill, and he just lets go of the of the wheel. And <laughs> wow. he's got this look, he looks over at me, he's like screaming, and I'm like kind of thinking, like, what the hell's going on here? This is an old man, is he like losing it? And at the last second, when we were about to go into this like marshy grass, he just like turned left and he starts cracking up and drove <laughs> the hill. And he so goes, Did I get you? Did I get you? And he gets his grandkids all the time like that, he said. <laughs> so you got hazed. I got hazed, yeah. I'm in the third. <laughs> he likes you. <laughs> Yeah, he was hilarious, and he talked. He talked for a really long time too. His his wife got us. Uh, she went out and like got Panera, and we were drinking wine and stuff. It was funny. Most of the guys, you know, it was more like an hour, and we just sort of got in there, got out, talk, talk baseball. But a few guys like Stanley uh, sort of welcomed me in in a really cool way that I I had no idea that any of them would do that. So it was pretty incredible, and uh, those kind of people also produce better interviews where you know, just out of their generosity or just for some reason they're comfortable, you know, by the second or third hour, they'll start to say stuff that maybe they otherwise wouldn't. And if they're on TV, you, you know, you see like Willie Horton or someone talk on local CBS news or, you know, at the Tigers game, it's very, it's not that it's rehearsed and it's not that it's not genuine, but it's cleaned up. Obviously it's very reverent of the fans and the team, but he's not going to say, you know, Mayo Smith getting drunk in the clubhouse and <laughs> kind of back. So Which like, apparently happened quite a bit. Well, the funniest one, I think it was Warden who first said this, but several of the guys said it, that he said the, the English D on the home jerseys, he said Mayo Smith, the manager, would have a, he had the equipment guy put a, a stitch a pocket inside the English D where he'd put a flask. And he'd just <laughs> reach in there drinking out of it all game. Wow. Funny, that was not part of the uh, giveaway jerseys on, on Saturday. No, I should have a complaint. Right. <laughs> Which, uh, you, that reminds me of one of the other stories that kind of pops up in the book is uh, Gates Brown, the Gator, and the famous story where he goes up to pinch hit. Uh, uh, someone who, who didn't pinch hit until late in the game is usually seventh, eighth inning. And the one game that he got called on, I think, in the fifth inning to go pinch hit, but he had just gone out and ordered two hot dogs. So he wolfed one of them down and then apparently stuck the other one inside his jersey and went to the plate to bat with a hot dog in his pocket, trying not to get caught because that's a finable offense. Uh, ends up getting a double, sliding headfirst into second and smearing hot dog all over him. But in your book, you have like three different players giving three different versions of the story. Which is the which is the real story? Well, it was funny because I, you know, I wasn't sure if I should ask about that in the first place because it didn't happen in the World Series. Uh, right. I forget what team it happened against, but it was, it was in 68. But I felt like, you know, there's so many great stories from that team that you can you can structure the book focusing primarily on the World Series where it's, and if people don't know, the, the chapters go by game one, game two, game three, and so on to game seven. Mm-hmm. But within those, you know, if the guys, let's say in game three, uh, so-and-so, Gates Brown comes up to bat and then they talk about what happened. Then from there, they'll go off on these tangents about the hot dog story and all that. So anyway, I thought it'd be just kind of a fun detail to include for Tigers fans. And so I asked four or five of the guys about it. And yeah, I mean, they there was some 
uh, concurrence on on what did happen. The one guy that thought it was a bit uh, it was a bit skeptical of the whole story is Mickey Stanley. He said, "I don't know if anyone would go to bat with a hot dog." That sounds kind of effed up to me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what's so bizarre is that here's a guy on the team who played in the games saying, "I'm not sure that ever happened." But yeah, it's all like how- the bullpen guys who who seem to be talking about it the most. And and Gates, I bet if if I could have talked to him, he passed away a few years ago. He I said Warden and Stanley were the kind of the most fun guys. I think Gates would have been the best interview, at mm-hmm. least in just like an entertainment value level. Because the way they talked about him, all of his teammates made it sound like he, I don't know, he was the guy. He was he was just sort of this character and this, I mean, not even just a clown. I mean, he was a real leader on the team, too. But he would make everyone laugh with, I mean, who brings hot dogs to the to the plate? Who puts a hot dog in their, in their back pocket or jersey or whichever it was? I can imagine it's, that now. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's insanity. Like, oh. <laughs> and the thing with that too is, uh, you know, a lot of Tiger fans might be familiar with a lot of these stories, which, whether it's uh, uh, K Line's single in Game Five or the, the Gates Brown hot dog story. But what I was hoping to do with this book was, even so, there, I think there's some stories in here that haven't been told or no one's really familiar with. But the ones even that have been told, and you know, everyone's heard of the hot dog thing. I was hoping to tell it in a way that still feels fresh with eight guys telling the real, uh, you know, they're telling it at length. They're telling it from a few different perspectives. They're telling it with as colorful language as they'd like. And I think it's worth even, if you're going to rehear the story, I thought, you know, it's nice to rehear it in, the, in a in a new way from, you know, in their own words that it kind of repackages it in a way that's fun. Yeah, no, for sure. Because that's, you talk about wanting to make a fresh story. And, you know, again, I feel like, the world that I live in, the baseball world that I live in on Twitter and blogs and that kind of thing, like there's not a lot of people that even talk about the 68 team that much again, because it's, it's so long ago that our generation has kind of forgotten, which is why I'm glad that you have this book. You know, it gives this generation a chance to reconnect with that. I I feel like I'm a little bit strange, you know, with my own peer group because I actually have read about the 68 team. So I had heard the hot dog story, but it was such a distant, you know, memory for me that reading it again in your book was like, oh, that's right. I forgot about the hot dog story. And I had certainly not heard it, you know, from several different perspectives. So it was it was definitely a very kind of a fresh outlook. Yeah, especially the aspect, too, of Ernie Harwell. You, at the time, like, until I read there was this book and then reading that he was the music director. And that was such a strange time huh. for a broadcaster to have that he had those kind of titles. Like he was doing all those multiple things. The Jose Feliciano, who, by the way, did a really good job at the anthem, but just how people were that upset that he was he did his version of the anthem. And that part, and also, you know, bringing in a guy like Tony Kubrick, who really, he's the first color guy in baseball that was on television. This is a guy who, this was his first World Series. Um, and he was, I believe this was his first World Series. Yep, he was, this was his first World Series he was doing. And he, and... Kurt, Kurt, Kurt Gowdy formed a voice in the 70s. You think of 70s baseball, you think of baseball on NBC, you think of Tony Kubrick, and I thought that was a, a nice touch to add him and add his perspective and his stories to it because here's a guy who was kind of, like I said, a big deal because he was one of only three guys that did color for a while, and just you remember him and Jim Palmer, and, and, and especially he was just – Jim Palmer was ABC, of course, so he was NBC. This was, the guy was the first big baseball color guy 
in, in all of baseball. And then you were talking about the, the development of radio to television. He was part of that transition. Yeah, he well, and, and what was special about him, too, is that he played in several World Series. And I forget how many it was and how many he won. But I think he won maybe five with the Yankees and played in seven total, something like that. And he retired early, which it's surprising that I'd be able to talk to a broadcaster from 50 years ago because normally they're at least 40 at the time and most of them aren't going to be around or able to talk but he was i don't know exactly how old he was but i think he was probably like 32 at the time because he retired early and got right into the broadcasting uh for 68 so he was great because i thought you know once i got a lot of the players and uh i had gotten a few of the cardinals at that point and and not the whole group yet but i thought you know i've got a lot of material but i wanted maybe a couple voices that were non-players off the team that could put things into, into context a little bit. And Kubek was perfect because he's so articulate and he remembers those games. He remembers also just where 68 fits in baseball history relative to his career in the 50s and early 60s. And just, again, like these in the 70s when he's doing all of his broadcasting later, he can talk about 75 and the Carlton Fisk home run and just where 68 fits in that whole kind of World Series lore. So considering the book is about the World Series, I just thought he'd be perfect. And the, there was kind of an odyssey to, to meet him, or actually I never met him. He was one of the few phone interviews. The others were all in person. And uh, I drove up to meet John Hiller at his house in the UP. And uh, I knew Tony Kubek had a, a lake house somewhere up there. I wasn't positive like if I had the right address, but I found an address and I, I was going to try it. When it was, I think this was in mid-September, about this time of year last year. So I left Hiller's house after the interview, and I drove on this trip like for an hour, just through these like back back roads through the woods, and I got to this place, and then it said uh, the Kubek Cottage. I'm like, okay, here I found it. Like you know, it's like Shangri-La or something. And I drive down this long driveway, incredibly remote, northern Wisconsin, like just in the back, totally in the woods. And I get there, and the house is all locked up for the season. And I was like, oh, mm. how like it's here. Like his house is here. There's a little Yankees banner, you know, and I'm like. I didn't know what to do, so I wrote him a note, and uh, I just hung it on the door. And about a week later, I got a call from him, and he said his handyman had come by, seen the note, and paid him a call and told him about it and gave him my number. So he got on the phone with me. We scheduled an interview, and then about a week later, he he got on the phone for about an hour. And, and you know, for people that, that get the book and read through it, he's he forms uh, one of the more primary voices in the book, even though he didn't play, because he can at the start of a chapter or just kind of in a transition point, kind of back up and zoom out a little bit and, and put the dots together about where, you know, Mayo Smith learned managing techniques from Casey Stengel being in the Yankees organization. And he can, he can frame things in a way that maybe the players didn't even realize or, or at least wouldn't think to mention. And the other, as for the other guys, there was a few people that for the same, by the same logic, I thought would be good to interview like non-players. I talked to an umpire, Bill Haller, who called, he was the home plate umpire for game six. Um, I tried to talk to Doug Harvey, who earlier this year passed away. And last year, he was I, I heard that he was very ill, so I wasn't able to talk to him. But he was the umpire for the famous play at the plate between where Lou Brock collides with Bill Freehand and Doug Harvey mm -hmm. made the best call of his life. He called Lou Brock out. but So I wasn't able to talk to him. But Bill Haller's in the book, Kubek, Jose Feliciano I, I called, and he talks about his national anthem and there's a few other people in there that sort of put things into context or at least just give details that the guys on the field, when they're playing, they might not know all the other things that are going on that maybe an umpire would see. And I thought that fills it out a little better. 
I would love to hear more about the process that you went through. You know, you, you sit down, you decide, I'm going to write this book. I'm going to interview these guys. Uh, I wouldn't even know where to begin at that point saying, okay, how do I find John Hiller? How do I find Mickey Stanley? I mean, do you, do you go to the yellow, not the yellow pages, the white pages, you know, like how do you find these guys, make the initial contact? Did you find them to be welcoming, you know, at, at first approach? How did that go? Yeah, well, I had the same thought you had. I, I, I came up with the, the book idea, and then I reached out to publishers, and a few of them liked it, and one of them uh, said, you know, go for it, and I got this contract. But then I'm like, I, I didn't even feel so excited about that because I go, well, I don't know if I can even pull this off. I don't know really if this is going to work, but I'll right. give it a go. And uh, the main thing I thought was be very uh, hesitant to take no for an answer at, at any point. Like, I was expecting a lot of no's and I just felt like you it's not going to go so smoothly. And if you're persistent, maybe you'll get to these guys. And I, you know, I don't know if that was a guarantee, but I was just thinking that should be the mentality. So I started off by looking up online. I don't remember what website, but a series of websites that where you can type in someone's name and find an address. And I had no idea if they're accurate, but I kind of, uh, uh, cross-reference them, I guess you could say, and, and figured out like, okay, Dick Trzuski seems to be living in this place, or at some point he did. And I sent letters out to all these addresses. And about a month went by, and I didn't hear anything. And then at the end of that month, I got a phone call from Dick Trzuski, who was one of the bench players on the 68 team. And he was one of the coaches on the 84 team, uh, and, right. and even beyond that. Uh, so he called me, and he, he sounded like he was interested, and Maybe he'd think about setting up an interview and this and that. And he lives out in Pennsylvania. So that was the that was the first moment that I felt, you know, maybe maybe there's something here. And I think there were two. I think there was just one more player who responded to me in that way. John Warden gave me a call, and from the two of them, I believe each of them gave me one more guy's number. I think Trzuski gave me Don Ward's number. Warden gave me someone's number, and I kind wow. of put it together from there, like going through the grapevine. Uh, there's also a guy at the Tigers who works for the Tigers fantasy camp who I got in touch with and he, so the fantasy camp in Florida and Lakeland, they, they bring all the players and this guy basically, he basically is like the liaison or something and he gets all the guys to come down. So he has their numbers and he couldn't, I mean, he, he would have been the guy that just, if he gave me all of them, it would have been like almost easy at that point, but he just gave me like, I think two because he, he didn't really know who I was, and he, he sort of helped out. But anyway, so for each, you know, you ask, like, how did how do I meet all these guys? For each player, it was a different process, and you had to sort of get lucky or get a number from someone. or uh, And even if you get a number, I mean, I got John Hiller's number, and it was the wrong number. It was Or maybe it was, like, his cell phone, but he doesn't pick it up. So eventually I had to get his wife's number somehow, and then I call her on the phone, and I, I explain quickly who I am, and then she goes, Hmm, I don't know you. And she hangs up. <laughs> I'm like, what? And so I call back like two days later and I, I did the same spiel and she she goes, I don't know you. And I go, oh, well, well. I said, I know you don't know me, but I'm trying to introduce, I'm trying to maybe like let you get to know me. I'm trying to just say who I am. And I think I think she hung up again. I think like she hung up at least twice. And then the third time she said no. I tried again. And this this last time I just blurted out quickly that I was like, oh, yesterday I met LK line and I was Two days ago, I was in Willie Horton's basement, and I just, like, I don't even know if she heard what I said. But uh, she, she stops, and she's like, wait, what? Like, Al Kaline at Willie Horton? She's like, hang on a second. And I can hear her in the background. She's, like, talking to John, and then she goes, well, okay, this might work. Uh, 
do you want to talk to John now? And I was just like, you know, it was like I said the magic password or something, like, oh, you wow. know, uh, open sesame or something. And he got on the phone with me and, and he didn't really know what I was asking for. He thought I wanted just to chat for a few minutes. So he goes, do you want to do it now? And I said, well, you know, I'd, I'd really love to drive up and do this in person. And he goes, oh, I'm in the UP. You don't want to do that. I said, no, I do want to do that. <laughs> he's like, yeah. he's like, can you come up tomorrow? I'm like, okay. <laughs> and then, you know, next morning at 7 a.m., I just drove up through Milwaukee, Green Bay, all the way up to his little town that he lives in. I get up there. He's He's got this Detroit Tigers hat on that's flannel colored. And uh, I guess it was a giveaway at Comerica Park a couple years ago. It's like the Uper hat. Oh, yeah, the, the red and black one, yes. I'm familiar yeah, with it had like the, U, the UP, like the outline of the UP, and he's wearing that. And he got a couple Coronas out, and we're sitting in his yard. He lives in this, he kind of lives in the woods, and there's this clearing he's got, like almost like a meadow outside of his house. And he's got all these salt licks outside on the edge of the trees. So as we're sitting there talking outside, there's like five or six deer just standing, honestly, like 20 feet away from us, just kind of like licking these salt licks. And I'm talking to him. <laughs> I'm like, where am I? I'm talking to John Hiller and these there's deer and we're drinking beer. And it's kind of funny just how you go from a week earlier, his wife's hanging up and then I'm sitting with him. And again, I just felt so grateful that he would even take the time. And once you're there, there's nothing going on up there in the UP. So he's, you know, he's liable just to keep talking and talking. And when I saw him this weekend in, uh, in Detroit, I gave him a copy of the book. And he almost looked nervous for a second because he said, I hope you didn't put anything bad in there. I don't know if I, you know, effed up anything. Like, <laughs> he doesn't remember, you know, if he kind of spilled the beans too much on stuff. But uh, there's colorful stories in there, but nothing to make them look bad or anything. And he, he was a great interview. So, you know, and I, I thoroughly enjoy the, the, the other aspect, too, was talk about Bob Gibson, who had such a big series. And Tim McCarver spoke about his methodic rep, repetitivity and how he just – Basically, everybody talks about the taste and Hook has discussed this too, the pace of the game and how it's t- baseball is taking so long. And and but in reality, I mean, this is Bob Gibson's like, get in there, get in the box, and we're going with two hours and that's it. And he was he had the fear. He put some of this fear in these guys that they didn't go out of the batter's box and then just the game went at a quicker pace. And that's that's something that he worked quickly. And and I like what Johnny Edwards was talking about. Um, you know, it, 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 he Gibson didn't mind anybody swinging hard or hitting a home run, as long as they didn't walk around the bases. So if if that was, he'd be a little thing of just showing him up, and that was like, no, you're not gonna do it on his mound on his time, and that that's quite an intimidation factor going into that. And then how the Tigers came overcame that in game one, the players kind of spoke about that a little bit, rallying around a guy who was just that imposing. You know, the funny the funniest thing to me about how they described it was. I talked to Tom Matchick, who was a bench guy who pinched hit in that game. And he goes, Gibby didn't get me. He didn't get me. And I'm like, I look up what he what he's talking about. And he so he what he meant was that he didn't strike out. He like popped out to second base or something, but uh-huh. he was proud of himself for not being one of the seventeen strikeouts. And you're going, that's how good Gibson was that day, that it's a badge of honor or it's a badge of uh like it's like an accomplishment to round out to second base. Um and McCarver had a quote, too, that was very compelling and, and shed light on just how special that day was for the Cardinals. That he was saying, and you hear about this on MLB Network even now, that there's uh, people are so much more willing to strike out these days, I guess. What do they, they call it? Like the three true outcomes, I think, where yeah. 
yeah. people don't see it as such a negative, I guess, and uh, maybe because you avoid the double play or for whatever reason. But with Carver was saying back then, the players just had so much pride about not striking out. So to strike out 17 guys, each of whom would much rather just tap like a grounder if they can to avoid the strikeout, you almost have to add like a multiplier of like, it's almost like you stuck, struck out 24 guys. And the fact that you we've never seen anything like that since, I don't know what the closest strikeout number has been since. I mean, he broke Koufax's record, which was 15. I don't know if anyone's gotten to 15 since, but they've not gotten to 17, and I don't think anyone's going to break it uh, in the World Series. I mean, we've seen 20, I think, from Clemens and Kerry Wood, but in the regular season. So, yeah, just the fact that you have in that series such a heroic legendary performance even though it's the losing team ultimately um kind of just set up that when i was first researching it just just realizing that the whole series started to have it kick off with a game like that a record-setting game that people still talk about you know i bet if you were there that day you can just tell that this series is going to be something special it's going to go seven games it's going to be the legendary it's going to be you know whoever wins this is going to be go down in the history books and uh you know, Gibson is just a huge part of that. That's yeah, funny. You talk about how it's the game is, you know, it's different now than what it used to be. Guys back then did not want to strike out. That's a badge of honor. Now it's kind of not that big of a deal. And yet in some ways, reading your book, it's like there's there's some ways in which the game hasn't changed. The one thing that stuck out to me was when they when some of the guys were talking to you about shifting. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a big deal today, you know, with the analytics and the stats and saying, yes, you have all these, you know, extreme shifts, uh, you know, to match up with this guy's spray chart or that guy's spray chart. Back then, I think it was even uh, Mickey Stanley that was talking to you about, like, yeah, we did that, but it was more of an intuitive thing. And like Mayo Smith understood some of that. It, it may not have been as extreme back then as it was now, but they they all seem to understand the concept, at least, and say, like, yeah, we just knew when you got up there. Uh, you know, this batter against this pitcher and we knew he was going to throw a fastball or whatever it was, we knew to take five steps this way. Yeah, well, and I mean, I think part of that is that there were fewer teams back then. I don't know how many, maybe were there 22 or so? Um, no, because there were no Rockies, Marlins, a lot of those teams. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they only really played in their league or interleague play. So to, to keep like a mental Rolodex of, you know, where Carl Yastrzemski hits the ball, where Boog Powell hits the ball. There's only so many hitters. There's maybe 50 hitters that you're going to see as a center fielder or a second baseman. So I wonder I wonder if that's almost impossible today to do, besides the fact yeah. that they look at the analytics. So I think that's part of it. And um, and, and just speaking of Yastrzemski, I, I, several of the guys mentioned that, that they would say, you know, when I'm playing left field, I know where Yaz is going to hit the ball. I shift this way, that way. And then when... Uh, the famous play where Willie Horton threw Lou Brock out, he sort of talks about that, that he, he says something like, at that point in the game, we, we closed the park up, I think he said, which meaning like we, we kind of shift or we kind of condense the outfield a bit to, to not let the ball drop. And I think especially with the guy on second base, with Lou Brock on second base, he, I think just Lowlich later in the games, they, they'd shift the outfield in this way. And then so he, he's in the right spot when Javier hits the ball to him takes one bounce, Brock's rounding third. For him, he can just go 10 feet. He says like he can go 10 feet to the left, 10 feet to the right, where he thinks the ball's going to get hit. And he was right. It came right to him. He picks it up, you know, shoots a cannon home, uh, takes one bounce, freehand tags him, and, and that's the famous play that 
Um, many, many versions of that on YouTube if people want to look it up. So, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, and as far as the, the notion of what was different back then, I, I did kind of want to avoid that to an extent because so many people like maybe in younger generations get annoyed at the whole, you know, old man yelling at clouds type stuff where it's <laughs> back in my day. And to be honest, I usually take, I usually am the sympathetic one to the old guys. I think they're not always just some, you know, old kooky guy rambling about stuff. I think they often have a point, but regardless, it can come off as whatever, a little annoying if they're just saying everything was better back then. So they talked a little bit about what was different back then, but not necessarily like they talked about. I mean, some of the guys that I talked to played in the fifties, Dick Schofield from the Cardinals and K-Line came up in, I think, 53 so when you talk to them, I mean, they really, when they came up, the Dodgers and the uh, Giants were in New York, and so they never, they weren't really flying on planes much. They were taking trains because you don't, if you're going, you know, Cincinnati to St. Louis to Milwaukee, and you're pretty much Boston. You're staying east of the Mississippi. St. Louis was the furthest team west. Um, it was a different era back then. By '68, it was relatively similar to now with airplanes and all that stuff. But uh, I just thought that was fascinating that. I don't know. You just have you have memories that stretch back even far beyond '68 to a time when it it really was different. And and speaking of Schofield, the the funniest thing he said to me was uh, he goes he said now now all these players have beards. None of us had beards back then. Maybe a mustache, but you know never yeah. always stay clean shaven. And then he goes, my grandson Jason Worth on the Nationals, like he looks like a caveman for Christ's sake. <laughs> he goes, he goes. He think his wife thinks it uh, his. He goes, his wife thinks it looks good, but I think it's a joke. <laughs> and before right. he left his house, he, he showed me his little man cave, his, like, baseball cave. And he has this promotional bobblehead of Jason Worth, his grandson. But it was like a bobblehead gnome, like a garden gnome bobblehead thing. So it's got Jason Worth. I don't know if the Tigers ever did this, but it has, like, Jason Worth with sunglasses on and this little, like, triangular hat, like a little, like, elf hat, gnome hat. And he's sitting there. And he, I, get, I got a picture with him saying with this little gnome of his grandson and uh you know i don't think they had bobbleheads oh, i don't know when the bobblehead came out but uh it's just cool to see him guys like that stay in touch with the modern game and realize what's different about it maybe they grumble a little bit but they're still fans of it and they can kind of combine when you talk to them reminiscing with just commentary on, on what goes on today yeah <laughs> It's huge. I know Ron Gardenhauer just got a gnome for the Tigers. Tigers manager Ron Gardenhauer got the the gnome. But the thing about you, you mentioned before, there was only 20 teams at the time, and this is the last year of one division, and before the division split off in 1969. So there was this. You could tell just kind of based off the tone. And I don't know, Hook, if you picked up on this tone with the players that you you talk about the game changing a little bit. But this was the last year the mound was raised. It would go down in 1969. So, I don't know, Hook, if you can speak to that a little bit about the players. It felt like during the book they kind of they knew the significance of this year. Yeah, I was just, I was just about to say that, uh, you know, Brendan was just saying, you know, you, this generation doesn't want to hear the older generation complain about how the game changed. You know, old man yells at clouds and that kind of thing. But for me, what came through in the book was not so much um, – sort of the chest thumping machismo like well back in my day pitchers would pitch 12 innings and then go back out there and you know throw another 16 it wasn't that that kind of thing in this book it was legitimate changes things like the mound size you know going down from what was it, 18 inches or whatever you know uh 
the one thing that stuck out was Al Kaline talking about uh, how the strike zone has changed, how it used to be, you know, chest high and down to the knees. And now it's like belt high and that's it. And I loved that section in the book where, where Kaline talks about uh, talking to Justin Verlander and saying, man, if you pitched back in my day, you would have been a 30 game winner easily because now pitchers today have to deal with this like really tight strike zone and still be excellent. And they are this year, like has been a huge year for pitchers and they're doing it with a strike zone that is much, much smaller than what, you know, someone like Danny McLean had to work with, you know, back in 1968. And, uh, I talked to Danny McLean a couple of years back about some of those changes and said, you know, you're the last guy to win 30 games in a year. And is that ever going to happen again? And he said, no, because they changed the mound height and that was such a big deal. So it's, I, I appreciated that about the book, that when players are talking about how different things were in the past, these are legitimate differences, not just mentality, you know, machismo. We were so much stronger and better back then. But um, speaking of Denny McLean, Brendan, I wanted to I had to ask you about Denny McLean, because Denny McLean, at least around these parts, Tiger's circles is something of a. <laughs> yeah, Roger's laughing because he knows exactly what I mean. <laughs> like he's a a pariah, I guess. I mean, he did jail time. He's been kind of a known jerk in you know appearances when he's gone to parks and signed baseballs Number and wants one. to charge money for you know taking a picture with him. Uh, how was he to interact with to interview? Well, he he first let me mention that at the luncheon on Friday at uh, in, in Detroit. He was front and center. They had this dais where it was 13 or however many guys were there. He was sitting in the front. They had the trophy on this kind of like podium lit up, all shining, bright, golden. And he was sitting right there, like right in front of the trophy, front and center. I was really surprised by that because I think it was random. But I, I knew of his reputation in Detroit and that, you know, there were issues with kind of fraudulent pension funds and all this sort of stuff. and. Mm. Uh, yeah, I just wasn't sure what the reception would be, but, uh, he, he made a good impression on people or he was well received. And like, you know, when he was talking, people were applauding, I guess for that day, whatever their impressions of him are, maybe it's uh, controversial or, or whatever, but people did seem to be, uh, happy that he and everyone else had showed up. But in any case, when I interviewed him, it was weird. I'd say it was the weirdest interview. I mean, as it got going, it was, it was, it was great. <laughs> But I show up, and he's just moved into a new house. And, uh, well, and let me rewind a second. He, I I'd played phone tag with him for, like, a month. I'd call him. He'd go. He'd just pick up. He doesn't really pick up in the normal way where someone says, like, like hey, who's this? He's just like, yeah. And, <laughs> uh, hi, sir. Uh, you know, is this, you know, Mr. McLean? And he goes, yes. And, you know, he's just it's very curt and blunt. So anyway, I got I got like a hold of him a few times and he kept saying basically what he was what kept happening was that he was at these signings that you mentioned. He all summer he was he would just be in Knoxville, Tennessee or Durham, North Carolina at like ballparks just signing balls. That's kind of what he does. So he'd yeah. be in the middle of a signing and I'd catch him at a bad time. So anyway, he kept saying, I'll you know, maybe next month. And then the one day he picks up and then he just right away he says, like, Yeah, could you come tomorrow at like ten AM? And I go, uh, okay. <laughs> and and then he pretty much just hung up after that. So then I show up. I'm not even sure if he like remembers that he agreed to this. I show up. There's all these moving vans outside. I don't even know if it's the right house. I'm like, like what's going on out here? It's kind of weird. It's kind of like that scene in, in Wedding Crashers where he goes to the uh, Chaz. He goes to the Will Ferrell's house and he's like, 
he doesn't know what's going on. And he comes down the stairs. So I go in there and there's a couple people kind of in the room and there's some guy with like a, a White Sox hat on. I'm kind of in there and then like Danny's sitting on the couch and he's on his phone and then he sees me and he, you know, we like say hi and he, he brings me in, but it was a little odd and I don't know why he picked the day that he moved into the house to talk to me because the whole time he kept saying about like 45 minutes in, he said, we got to go to the bank because we just moved in today and we got to take care of this. And then the mechanic is coming by to fix uh, like the boiler and he had shed all this stuff going on. I felt bad. I felt like I was intruding, but then again, he told me that that was the best day. So uh, in terms of the interview, it was it was a good interview, and I was really happy to talk to him. But uh, it, he was a little distracted. He had the TV on the whole time. and uh, <laughs> But that being said, he and his phone kept ringing. He picked up the phone and talked to people. But what he the, the material he gave me was, was really great and, and very, uh, let's say, candid at times, very colorful in the way he speaks. Uh, the first line of the book, I felt like, had to go to him and... Oh God, that's such that's such a great opener. By yeah, the way, congratulations on that. <laughs> well, I'll say the cleaned up version. He said, <laughs> he said we knew we were going to we knew we were going to win the World Series. They had one effing pitcher. One. If we couldn't beat the other effing stiffs, then we weren't any good. <laughs> it's such a great opener. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like that's. I think that was the one of the first things he said to me. I mean, like five minutes in, he just starts cursing up a storm and. Uh, <laughs> I got the tape recorder rolling and I'm just like, this is good stuff, you know? And, uh, and that's how he is. It's not like normally on TV, he'd clean it up necessarily, maybe on TV, but like normally he doesn't clean it up and then I'm giving him like a bad look at the luncheon. He, he was cursing more at the luncheon than he was in the book in front of 500 people who like paid for tickets. And I mean, they were enjoying it, but I was surprised. I was like, Holy shit. Like what is, you know, he's just really going for it. Yeah. He's, uh, I mean, when he was on radio, I mean, he knew how to stir people up. And he was, for a long time, with Eli there, they had a really good radio show. And that was, he was dominated that market. So he's he's a guy, he won't, you won't forget. He's just, I, I don't know, Hook, it's uh, whether you like him, hate him, whatever, he, he is who he is, and he makes no bones about it. So, in October to remember, 1968, the Tigers-Cardinals World Series, as told by the men who played it, Brent Donnelly, you can find it anywhere. Amazon, where else can you find this great book? You can find, uh, if you're in Michigan, it's at every Barnes & Noble and a couple other stores. And then otherwise, and I'm hoping it'll soon be in national stores uh, if, it, if it does really well. And uh, otherwise, yeah, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Right. And uh, one thing I just wanted to mention, sure. uh, finally, uh, I don't know if you guys noticed, but the well, the hardcover has a photo insert in the middle that turned out really nice. And about eight of the photos are from AP and might be familiar to people. You know, you've seen pictures of Gibson and, and Brock and, and those guys. But then I went to the Wayne State archives. There's Tony Spina, who was a photographer for a long time for, I think, the Free Press. He has these archives there, all of his photos. And I went through all the negatives, looking at them on a light box. And I picked, I think it's 10 or 11 of the... 25 or so photos are never before published photos from this Tony Spina collection. And, uh, they're really cool. I mean, it's just stuff you, you they're not online or anything. And, uh, you got pictures of guys in the book, Kubek, McCarver, uh, McLean, all those guys. And, and I kind of couldn't tell what they looked like at first looking at the negatives. And then when, when the woman at, at the archives converted them, they were just amazing. I mean, they're all black and white and, and he was kind of this legendary photographer. So for people, Checking out the hardcover, you know, flip through it and, and look at those. 
And then the other, there's the, the two final photos were given to me by Bill Freehand's wife, uh, who I spoke to. She's in the book. She spoke on his behalf. Uh, he has Alzheimer's, as you guys probably know. And she, I, I asked her if she had any personal photos, and she sent me two Polaroids of the Freehand home the night or the day after Game 7. It was totally TP'd. They put posters all over the house and the garage, and it said, like, here lives Bill Freehand, world champion. And it was hilarious. Was, these days, a lot of the players don't even live in Michigan necessarily. Or if they do, it's, you know, some giant house that you don't really have access to. Yeah. Oh, they lived in this very down-to-earth kind of neighborhood with neighbors who knew them, knew where they lived. And uh, it's pretty cool just to see. Uh, she scanned those and sent them over. So those are in there. And it's just it's not something you'd see for, you know, the World Series winner of 2018. So do you have any, like, book signings coming up? Uh, I'm arranging those now. Uh, at the Barnes & Nobles across Michigan, those will be the most likely places I'll be. I've been in touch with the stores, and I stopped at a few of the stores and signed copies over the copies they had. So I forget which ones, but about six or seven. If you pop in, you might you might find a signed copy. And otherwise, probably early October, I'll be back out there uh, just to coincide with the actual 50th uh, anniversary. And I would imagine that any of those events you'll be announcing on your Twitter account at big underscore inning. Yeah. Yeah. I'll announce it there. And, uh, uh, I don't know if people follow like the Barnes and Noble stores on, on Facebook or something, but I think they put out, uh, a little blurb as well. So, so uh, la- last question before we bail out of here, because I know Roger's got to go, but, uh, any chance you'll be tackling the same kind of a project for the 84 team in the next couple of years? Please. Well, the original, the original idea was to do the same concept for every year, for every 50th anniversary. So I started work on the 69 World Series, 69 Mets and Orioles. I'm not sure it's going to work. It's, I got one, I interviewed Ed Cranepole, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out if it's going to work or, you know, if it's in the cards. But I guess, you know, if that happens, if I become the World Series oral history guy, then in how many years would it be? 15 years, 16 years, 84 will come up. But, you know, that's kind of a far away. <laughs> so maybe I can just skip ahead and do like, you know, the 30th. Or no, it's beyond 30, right? Yeah, yeah. I have to do like the 40th or thir- whatever. I, maybe just forget about the anniversary and just go for it. So I know the 84 team's huge, and I'll keep that in mind. Let's just say that. Good. Yeah, 20, 2024 would be the 40th year anniversary for the 84 team. So Also, you can check out his website, too, beginning, uh, Big uh, dash inning.com. I was checking out your website earlier and some of the, il- the illustrations you have in pen are really cool. Uh, if you go to the image archive, you check that out. That's really cool. And that's a site that kind of goes over some, uh, the blog site. I thoroughly enjoyed that too, as well. So great work on there. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to talk to you guys and talk to people who are so, uh, such tigers diehards. And I met a lot of people like you guys at the game, this, the two games this past weekend, just, you know, you're just kind of in the line to get a hot dog and people are chatting about 68 kind of <laughs> obsessively and excitedly. And it was just really cool to see that all the people that came out. So, yeah, great to talk. Thanks for having me. And uh, hopefully people take a look at the book and, and kind of learn all these little stories like the hot dog story and, and all the rest. Thanks again.